Good morning. It's a blessing to be with you all today. Thank you for coming here. My name's Kirk. I'm a pastoral intern at this church, and from time to time I get the special privilege of preaching behind this pulpit. Uh, right now we're in between sermon series, so if you've been with us the past several weeks, we just finished up a study in Exodus, and next week, at this point, the plan is to start a series in Hebrews. Um, but today is an interim message, and uh, for the sermon, I picked 2 Peter 3, of which you just heard Dylan read verses 1 through 15. And I picked this passage for a few reasons. One of the reasons why I picked it is because it's a great reality check for us as Christians. Seeing what will happen at the end of time, or at the end of time here on this world, I should say, is absolutely essential to living properly today. If you don't have your Bibles open already, please turn there. And uh, let's, let's open up in prayer before we begin. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Father, for speaking to us through your word. We wouldn't be able to know what will happen in the future if it weren't for you telling us. And Lord, you certainly didn't have to tell us what awaits us, but you do because you're so loving and gracious and merciful and desire all to repent and to be saved. Lord, some of these things will surely be difficult for us to hear. We pray that you would give us receptive hearts, that we would see you as the holy and good and just God that you are, that we would see that last day of judgment and the fate that awaits all those who reject your gospel. Cause our hearts to properly break for the lost. And if we are not saved ourselves, cause us to repent this very day and trust alone in you. Don't let a single person, Father, in this room who is not saved at this moment to leave this morning without knowing that they have security on that last day in Christ, without truly being saved through the death and resurrection of your Son. And for all of those, Father, who do already know you, we pray that you would use this time to sanctify us greatly. Give us a glimpse of that final day. Give us a glimpse of what all of these other days are leading up to and cause us, Father, to live every day, this day, in light of that day. Lord, we pray that you would show us what that looks like and that you would enable us by the power of your Spirit through Christ to live it out. Father, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would cause me to disappear, that your word would be made known. And that if we take offense, it would not be at me or the way I present this, but it would simply be at your word for what it is. We pray, Lord, that that would not be the response. That it would be joyful acceptance of your message and that we would live in accordance with it. Pray that you would glorify yourself the most possible during this time. We're completely dependent on your spirit, both for the preaching of this word and to receive it properly. So we pray that you would do all of this for your name's sake. Amen. <clears throat> What if you could tell the future? What if you were able to know what was going to happen before something would happen? Some people say it's impossible to predict the future, and I get why they say that. But I tell you, if it were possible to predict the future, you'd be wealthier than Jeff Bezos. You'd be worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. Imagine being able to predict the direction of every stock on the market, or being able to predict the outcome of a sporting event before it happened, or being able to predict the turn of every card hand. It wouldn't take long before you would have amassed an incredible fortune for yourself and probably power beyond your belief. 
because you know the best place to put your money, the most successful way to spend your time and your resources. You would be the most wealthy man in the world. Well, what I'm telling you today is that I can predict the future. And it's not because I have power in and of myself to know what's going to happen. It's because God, who controls all things and knows all things, has spoken and he told us what will happen in the future. And I'm here simply to repeat what he said. He's told you these things here in his word because he wants you to know the future. Because you need to know the future. Knowing what will happen can and should change your life. It should shape the way you live today. Determine what you do now, the most profitable ways to spend your time, to use your energy and your resources and your finances. This morning, we're going to go to the future. We're going to take a look at the day that all other days in this world are leading up to. We're going to travel forward in time, not not in a time machine, not in the DeLorean, but we're going to travel in the Word of God, specifically in 2 Peter 3. Now, to give you a little background about this letter, we actually don't know much about 2 Peter. Um, Obviously, the author is Peter. He states that very clearly, and we can guess that this was probably written sometime around 60 to 68 A.D. Not sure of the exact audience, but it's likely that this letter was sent to the churches in Asia Minor because there was a shared audience with Paul. And because we're jumping straight into chapter 3 today, just to give you some context on what else was covered in the letter, Thomas Schreiner in his commentary on 2 Peter gave a good outline of the book. In chapter 1, Peter talks about God's grace being a foundation for life and godliness. And Peter gives the church an apostolic reminder to stir them for action based on the fact that Jesus' coming was established with eyewitnesses and on the prophetic word of God. In chapter 2, Peter talks about the arrival and the character and the judgment of false teachers that the church would face. And chapter 3, which is what we're studying today, reminds us that the day of the Lord will come. Now, Peter's addressing a specific group of false teachers in this letter. We don't know much about the false teachers either. What we know is that they professed to be Christians, that they supposedly came from the church, but they also denied the second coming of Christ and that there would be a future judgment. And apparently this showed in their life. Peter rebukes them for a licentious lifestyle, which is what you would expect if someone didn't believe that there was going to be a final judgment. And so in his uh, letter, he's not just correcting their false beliefs about the end times, but he's correcting the way it's shaping and changing their life. Now sometimes we too, even as believers, we might not outright deny that Christ is going to come again or that there will be a final judgment, but oftentimes we live like it in our lives. Sometimes we subtly believe and think as well that the world will continue the same way it always has, that Christ will not come again the way he promised that there will not be a great day of the Lord and a day of judgment and that all will be held accountable for their actions. This is such a grave mistake. Many theologians have recognized that eschatology, what we believe about the end times, goes hand in hand with ethics, how we live now. And so what I want to get across to you today, the main point, the big idea of this sermon, is that we must live this day in light of that day. Live this day in light of that day. Of that day. And I want to motivate you to do this by giving you a glimpse of that day, seeing what it's like, understanding what's going to happen, and then showing you how we should live today in accordance with it and the power we have to do so through Christ. So, two points. The first point is that day, and the second point is this day. 
And the first point will be longer than the second point because the second point should be a natural outflow or outworking of the first point. But let us look first at that day and give you a glimpse of what God says will happen to this world in the future. What will happen at that day? 2 Peter 3, read verse 7 with me. Peter says, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, referring to all creation together, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This world that you're sitting on right now is being saved for something. It's being reserved for something. Do you realize that? What is it that this world is being reserved for? Peter says it's being stored up for fire. That this world These chairs, this carpet, this planet that we're on, in fact, all of created universe, it's not just the earth, but it's the heavens as well, is being stored up and reserved to, at some point in the future, be burned. Now, I grew up on the other side of the hill in Scotts Valley in Boulder Creek. Our first home was in Boulder Creek, and we had a beautiful uh, wood-burning stove in the house. And uh, if you know, if you've been to... um, our house now, or my family's house in, in Scotts Valley. Uh, my dad great, makes great fires, and uh, we love to get to sit um, by the fireplace and, and, uh, and watch the flames and, uh, and, and feel the warmth talking with each other. Um, you typically burn fires during the winter time, and so uh, if summer, if you have the chance to gather wood, um, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll get it and you'll chop it and you'll, or, you'll organize it um, at a place in your yard so that when the winter comes, you can, uh, you can burn it. And so uh, sometimes during the summer and other seasons of the year, we would store up wood so that in the future, in wintertime, we'd be able to, to burn it together. This world, this universe, is like the wood that's being stored up to be burned at some point. It's being reserved. It's being saved. It's being treasured up to be burned in the future. God's plan is for this universe to burn And how long will it be stored for? Well, Peter says it will be stored until Judgment Day, until the day that Christ comes again and he destroys all evil and he rewards the righteous for their righteousness and each person will be repaid. There will be one final judgment. There's different views on the end times, but from what I can tell you, based on our studies, there's one day where Christ will come again. There's not three separate judgments or two separate judgments. There's one day of judgment where Christ will come back And Peter says, this day of the Lord will be a day of destruction for the ungodly. Now it's easy to read a verse like that and to hear him referring to ungodly people in an abstract way or in an arbitrary way. This is not just referring to the destruction of evil in general. Peter's not just referring to the blatantly ungodly. He's not just referring to Al-Qaeda or to Hitler or to Stalin. He's referring to anybody that does not live a life that's reflective of who God is. And so what I want to ask you this morning is, who do you know in your life that would fall into this category? Who do you know that Peter would say is ungodly? The Bible makes it clear that this is everyone who does not have Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I want you to make this specific for yourself. This is anyone who rejects the gospel. Who rejects the good news. Perhaps this is you, Peter's referring to. Perhaps you're the ungodly person that has yet to repent and believe. 
Maybe if you've repented and believed yourself, this could be referring to your friends, maybe your family members. I know I personally have many colleagues and neighbors and family members and friends that don't know Christ. And I know in light of this passage that unless something changes in their life, they, the real people that I love and care about, they will be destroyed on that last day. These are real people with real names and real lives, people we know and are close with ourselves. And this judgment that Peter speaks of is not just an immediate destruction or destruction in this life. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that when the Lord Jesus, quote, is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he'll be inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, not just temporal destruction, but eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. This judgment will be the beginning of an eternal judgment, of an everlasting punishment, being separated from God in his glory forever and ever in hell. Hearing this should make you mourn for the lost. It should break your heart for those that have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It should cause you to cry out yourself if you have not obeyed it yet and to fervently pray for those in this situation that you know. Hear the words of the Apostle John. He envisions the judgment scene in Revelation chapter 20. Starting in verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Everyone's there. Everyone you know in your life is there standing before God. It's a universal judgment, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. It's so simple. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is what the Bible says. These are not my words. These are God's words to you. Real people that you know thrown into the lake of fire on that last day. And it's a real day. Peter says it's, quote, a day of judgment. It's a specific day. You can give it a date if you want. August 27th, 2043, perhaps. Maybe February 13th, 2020. Maybe today, January 19th, 2020 could be the day of the Lord. It will be a specific day, a real day in the future. And every day leading up to that is counting down to that day. Right now, even as I speak, there's an exact, there's an exact number of minutes and seconds leading up to the day of Christ. And each second that passes is one second closer. The world, the heavens, and the earth is ticking down to the day It burns. What will this day be like? Peter says in verse 10, 
but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He says it will come. In the Greek text, the phrase will come is first. It emphasizes the certainty of his coming. Don't doubt that this will happen. It's as certain as history past. What does it mean that he will come like a thief? Sometimes this passage can be confusing to people, but it's actually very simple. It means that you won't expect it. It means it's going to come suddenly. It's going to take you by surprise. It's going to be a surprise intervention. It means many people will not be prepared. If you were prepared for a thief to break into your house, there would be no robberies. Sometimes we don't believe Christ's coming as much as we should. Sometimes we feel like it is far off. But Peter says it could come at any time. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. When do labor pains come? Often they come in the middle of life unless you're induced. They'll come while you're well, while you're at work, while you're spending time with your family, they'll come while you're doing the dishes or while you're sleeping or while you're going to school. I know when, when Sarah and I had Abby for the first time, her labor pain started uh, one night, either right before we went to bed or after we had gone to bed. Unexpected. We didn't know when it was going to happen, and then suddenly they come on. So it will be on that day. Everything will be normal. Life will be continuing as it always has for us and then suddenly God will intervene and the day of judgment will be here. Notice as well that this is a dramatic intervention. Peter says that the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The ESV says heavenly bodies. Literally the word is elements, which I think is probably better. And it's any part of a compositor series that can mean the letter and an alphabet or the basic stuff from which the physical world is made, which is what I think it's referring to here. It's the sky, mentioned earlier in the verse, and all of the elements, everything that the world is physically made of will be burned. And it's described with this adverb roar. The Greek word is roizodon. And one commentator said it's an onomatopoetic word which means that it's the way it sounds. It's, it's described as coming with a great noise, with a rushing sound, or the whistling of an arrow, or the rush of wings, or the hissing of snakes. Look at verse 12. It repeats the idea of verse 10, but phrased a little differently. Verse 12 says, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the, hel- the, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies or elements will melt as they burn. Perhaps the sound, this roar, is the crackling sound from the fire. The roar of the flames as they consume everything in its path. And Peter says that the whole universe dissolves. Everything melts from the heat and is burned to the ground. In California, we're familiar with the idea of fires. In fact, it wasn't too long ago in 2018 that we had the deadliest and most destructive fire in history, the campfire. It burned over 150,000 acres. Over 85 people died. 
And the images that we saw in the news were dramatic, to say the least. The sky was red. You would see the smoke billowing up from the ground to the cameras filming above. Fires left nothing but ashes in its wake, and the town of paradise was burned to the ground. I want you to imagine that happening for San Jose. Imagine the city we live in being burned to the ground like that. Imagine your office, your workplace, being turned to ashes. The commute that you take to work, the road that you take to work, being burned to the ground. Your neighborhoods, the parks you play at, the forest we love to hike in in Santa Cruz, the beach, the ocean, everything obliterated by the fire. And not just imagine that happening here in the Bay Area. Imagine that happening to the entire state of California. Imagine it happening to the entire United States in flames. Imagine it happening to the entire world. That's what it will be like on that last day. And with a fire and intensity that is unmatched, it will make the campfire we saw in 2018 like a candle in your living room. We'll see nothing like this. Everything burns on that last day. The result of God's fires made clear in verse 10. The end of verse 10, Peter says, And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Literally, it says, And the earth and everything in it shall be found. Everything shall be found. This is a difficult text. Some translations read that it shall be burned up, but it seems likely that the phrase, It was found, is what makes the most sense. And even though it can be difficult to interpret, it's likely referring to the consequence of the burning. That with the heavens gone, that which once intervened, that which once perhaps separated us, is gone. And the earth, or as one commentator said, the scene of human history and all the evil works done by man will be laid bare before God's divine judgment. Everything will be exposed. There will be nothing to hide behind. Everything that's ever done will be visible before God. Perhaps there is a contrast here to the wicked who try to hide on that last day. Isaiah 2.19 says, And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. There will be no place for you to hide on that day. Everything will be burned away, all sinful deeds discovered, and everything will be brought to justice and every evil deed condemned. Indeed, the climax of this verse, of verse 10, is not the destruction of the world. The climax is the judgment of the wicked. It's the exposure of all works that have ever been committed on the face of the earth. I want you to imagine standing there on that day apart from Christ. Imagine every sinful thing you've done exposed and found by him. Imagine every thought, every word you've spoken, every sinful desire you've had in your heart, everything that you've done that is displeasing to him found before God's judgment seat, laid bare on that last day, on the day of his reckoning. That's a terrifying thought. That thought should make it impossible for you to sleep at night apart from Christ. That thought should cause unceasing dread in your heart. It should cause panic attacks and severe depression if you don't have Christ as your Savior. This is reality. This is what the Bible says. 
Notice what follows the destruction and judgment, though. Verse, 14, uh, verse 13, Peter says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That something comes after the world is destroyed. It doesn't stay destroyed forever. And whether it's complete annihilation or purification that Peter's talking about here, we're not sure. But whatever it is, it's, fully, it's a fully sufficient destruction of the universe such that it can be reconstructed and made the way that it's supposed to be. Isaiah prophesied to this in Isaiah 65, verse 17. He said, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And John's vision confers, concurs with God's promise spoken of by Peter and by Isaiah in Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He destroys the universe so that he can make all things new, so that he can establish a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, as he says in verse 13. God will come on that day and he will bring the world back to the original state of chaos and disorder, or similar to the original state of chaos and disorder from which he created the world in the first place. And from that disorder, God will bring forth a new world in which his, in which his righteousness is fully manifested in which there will be no more pain or suffering or evil forever and ever. Perfect beauty, perfect glory, all things restored, everything made right, every wrong righted, evil done away with forever. This is what the Bible says. Why did the false teachers deny this? What was their reasoning for not believing that this day would come? Read verses 1 through 4 with me in 2 Peter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, Peter says. Beloved, in both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers, likely referring to the patriarchs, fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They say all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Their argument is this. They're saying that the physical world has been stable ever since God made it. They assume that God doesn't intervene in the world like this. God doesn't come back and burn everything with fire, and judge the living and the dead. That's not what God does. The world has continued the way it is today ever since God made the world initially. 
And so they deny the second coming on the grounds of the fact that it has not happened, that it has not been fulfilled. Everything continues to be the way it has always been. I think this is amazing because I think that we subtly believe this ourselves sometimes. It's so easy to trust our eyes, to trust our senses, to trust our experiences, and assume that everything's going to stay the same. When I go to work every day and I wake up on Monday, I expect my alarm to go off and for me to get in the shower and to drive to work and to work a full day and then to come home and enjoy time with the family because that's the way it's always happened. This is the way it's happened every day for the past several years. And I assume it's the way it's always been for me and for the world. Why would I expect this to change? And sometimes we live as if it won't. What was Peter's counterargument to them? Verses 5 through 7. Listen to what Peter says. He says, They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 5 says they deliberately overlooked this fact. It might not be deliberately. I think the NASB renders it better when it says that, verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. In other words, it escapes their notice. They've forgotten some important points in their argument. Peter identifies three important points that they've left out or forgotten. I pray that these would not escape us. The first, read with me in verse 5, is that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the world of God. He's saying that originally the world existed in a state of chaos and instability. And God radically intervened in that situation to bring order and stability. In other words, the act of creation itself was an act of God's intervention. You can't say God doesn't intervene in the world like that when he intervened at the very beginning to bring about the stability that we have. Read the account of day two and part of day three in creation, Genesis chapter one. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters uh, from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse, and God and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under, he- under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Before this, the earth was empty and void. And God brings stability. He brings order into this chaotic situation. And from the waters, both the heavens and the seas and the earth emerges by the power of his word. That same word which introduced stability into creation is the same powerful word that's sustaining all things now according to Hebrews 1 verse 3. What's to stop God, the one who's sustaining stability now from taking that stability away. Peter's second argument in verse 6 is that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's saying that things have not always continued in stability the way that you think they are, false teachers. 
God radically intervened in the past. He flooded the entire earth. And the same means that he used to bring about order, the power of his word and water as his instrument, God used to bring about a global catastrophe. He killed all of mankind with the exception of Noah's and his family. He judged sin and brought about a new beginning. Genesis 7, verse 11. Listen to the catastrophe. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, a specific day, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits. That's about 23 feet deep. And all the flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with them in the ark. The scoffers were wrong. God has radically intervened before. To believe that all things have continued the way that we see them now is a false assumption, and it's a deadly assumption. God wiped the earth clean in the past. He created a new beginning with Noah and his family, but it wasn't good enough. There will be another new beginning. There is still sin, still evil in the world that needs to be dealt with. God will come back and establish one final beginning that will last forever. Peter's third and final argument against them is verse 7. He says, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That exact same word, that exact same sovereign decree that brought stability into the world initially, and wipe the world clean with the flood, that same sovereign decree is storing the world up for another judgment in the future. This time it will be with a different instrument, though. It will not be by water, but by fire. This week, when I was driving to work, it had rained a couple times, and as I was pulling into the parking lot, there was a rainbow right next to the side of my building. And of course, you know from the covenant that God made with Noah that he gave the rainbow as a sign, as a covenant promise that he would not destroy the earth with the flood again. Keep in mind, though, that promise was not to not destroy the earth. It was to not destroy the earth with the flood. And for me, when I see the rainbow, I'm reminded of God's grace in not destroying us again like that. But I'm also reminded of his promise to destroy this world in the future by fire. That same word which caused the catastrophe has promised that he will again intervene in the future and that final intervention of which we speak is the day of the Lord. Why will that day come? Why does God have to come like this? The answer is very simple. It's because God is just and we are are sinful. The day of the Lord will come because God is a just God and man is sinful. Zephaniah prophesied to the judgment 
on the whole earth in chapter 1 of his book. He says, The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. Why? Because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. The day of the Lord is an inevitable day. It is a day that must come and will certainly come because God is a holy and good and jealous God. He's not like you and me. He is not able to tolerate evil and sin and suffering forever. He will eventually come to restore all things. He will come to make this world right again. And the punishment is so severe. The day of wrath is so severe because our sin is so serious and so heinous and so offensive and so abominable to God. And so the, it's not a question of why this day will come. The real question is, why has it not come yet? Why has he not come to wipe the world clean this day? Peter says in verse 8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter wants you to get something. He says, don't overlook this one fact. That word overlook is the same word he used in verse 5 of the false teachers. Don't let this one thing escape your notice. Don't miss something important like they did. What is that important point? It's that with God, a long time for us is not a long time for him. People may say it's been a long time. People may say that he's waited a very long time to come back, but for him it is not long. It's likely Peter here is alluding to Psalm 90 verse 4, which is a psalm that contrasts the eternity of God to the temporality of man. Psalm 90 says in verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but as a yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. Our lives as human beings are like flowers. They flourish in the field, and in a matter of days the wind comes and it blows them away and they are gone. But our eternal God is not like that. A long period of time and a short period of time are like the same for God because he's eternal. An eternal God experiences or has a different relation to time than we do as human beings. Now it's important to realize that this does not mean that time is real. Time is real. A day is a day. A thousand years is a thousand years. Don't misuse the text and try to read 
that somehow a day is actually a thousand years and believe that the earth is much older than it is like some people pervert this passage and do. The word as or like is very important here. It says that a day is as a thousand years for the Lord, that the eternal God has a different relation to time than we do as temporal human beings. As one commentator put it, God uses time so as to serve his purposes of grace. What is a thousand years to the Lord if he can thereby bring many to repentance? I don't just say, what is a thousand years to the Lord? What is 2,000 or 3,000 or 10,000 years to the Lord if he can bring many people to repentance? Peter says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He is not delaying. He is not failing to keep his word. Instead, Peter says, He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Not wishing indicates the cause. Why is God patient? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all people to come to the point of repentance. He wants all people to change their mind, to recognize that they've sinned against God, to acknowledge that and to turn from it and to trust alone in him. He desires everybody to be saved. Repentance is a state that God wants all people to reach. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God does not take pleasure in the great destruction that will take place on that last day, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God wants you to turn back. He's calling you this morning, if you haven't turned back, to turn back to him today. Why would you continue this way? He's told you what will happen. He's told you the day of judgment will come. You see that now. Don't persist in sin. Repent. Change your mind. Trust in him. He wants you to be saved. The reason why he has not come back today, the reason why he's deferring his return, is to keep the opportunity for salvation open. What great patience and long-suffering of God, that he would tolerate continued perpetuation of evil and offense against himself, that more might have a chance to be saved. He doesn't have to do this. He'd be perfectly just to end everything now, but he does because he's so infinitely gracious. I pray you've gotten a glimpse of that day. The day if the Lord will come suddenly, an honor Christ will return in dramatic fashion, bringing fiery destruction upon creation and judgment on the ungodly, establishing the new heavens and earth. The false teachers denied this, saying everything is continued as is, but Peter showed that they forgot to account for God's intervention in creation, they forgot to account for his intervention in the flood of Noah's day, and for the fact that that same word promises God's intervention in the future. God in his glorious grace continues to defer his coming out of a desire for people to repent and be saved. That's the day. That's the day of the Lord. The second point I want to look with you, I want to look at it with you is shorter. And it is simple. Now that you know the future, how should you live in light of that day? Now that you know the future, how should you live today? I want to start by asking you this. How would you live today if you didn't believe that day would come? Ask yourself, if there was no such thing as a day of judgment, how would you live today? Apart from Christ, it's a scary thought. 
if there's no final judgment and no moral reckoning, likely you would give in to all your sinful desires. Maybe you'd steal. Maybe you'd cheat. Maybe you'd hate. Maybe you would lust or lie or covet. Whatever gratified your sinful heart most is probably what you would pursue headlong. Notice how the false teachers are described in verse 3. This is precisely it. Peter says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, what? Following their own sinful desires. If you do not believe that that day will come, you will follow your own sinful desires. In fact, Peter elaborates on what exactly that looked like for them in the second chapter of this book. He says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. And you and I would do the same if we did not believe that day would come. Licentious lives are correlated with the denial of Christ's return and a judgment in the future. Indeed, what we believe matters greatly for us now. Thomas Schreiner said, quote, that those who disregard the future cosmos will not live well in the present one. Those who disregard the future cosmos will not live well in the present one. Now let me ask you this. How are you living now? If someone were to look at your life, would they say it looks like someone who believes the day of the Lord is coming soon? Is that what someone would say about you? Or would they say that you follow your sinful desires as if they will not be exposed? Would they see that you pursue the things of this world, that you're fixated on advancing your career or earning that degree that you want or saving for that perfect home or having that perfect car or enjoying that perfect vacation or having that perfect family or that perfect satisfying relationship? or getting to that state of wealth that you want, or the fame that you've always desired, would they see that you're pursuing these things as if this world is not destined to perish and everything in it burn? Not that any of those things are necessarily wrong, but you have to ask yourself, how important are those things to you? Is it evident in your life that you are focused most on eternal things? Is it evident by the amount of time you spend in Scripture and prayer by the purity of your thoughts, by the faithfulness with which you share the gospel with others and make disciples, by your zealousy for church gatherings and for worship, by your love for others and your service and your sacrifice, is it evident that you're seeking God's glory in all that you do? How comfortable are you with sin? Do you let yourself think things and say things that you wouldn't want laid bare for him on that last day? If we're honest with ourselves, we have all been like false teachers. We have all followed our own sinful desires. Each and every one of us has lived as if he's not coming back, as if there is no judgment. How can God spare a sinner like you? What hope do you have on that day of the Lord? In Noah's day, he built an ark. What is your ark for the final day of judgment? What gopher wood can withstand that roaring fire? Where will you hide when all wicked deeds performed on the earth will be found by judgment for God? 
There is one man you can hide behind and only one man, Jesus Christ. He stands in your place. He offers himself up to God, willing to be consumed by him for you. Jesus drank the cup of God's fiery wrath instead of you. When God comes again on that great day at the Lord, he doesn't have to judge you if he's judged Christ instead. Yes, justice must be satisfied. God must judge every sin, but instead of throwing you into hell, into the lake of fire like you and I deserved, he became a man and let that sword fall on himself. We are all like the false teachers that Peter says in chapter 2, verse 13. We are blots and blemishes. We are blots and blemishes. We deserved his wrath. But on the cross, the father crushed his son instead. He offered Jesus as an unblemished lamb, as a blotless lamb, as a sacrificial lamb for the sins of many. 1 Peter 1.18 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How precious it is indeed. Only Jesus could take your place. Only he was without blemish or spot himself. He lived a perfectly sinless life. On that day, he would have nothing to hide before God. Amazing. He didn't deserve punishment himself, but he gave himself for you. He gave himself up as your substitute, as your sacrificial lamb, that you, as Peter says in verse 14, may be, quote, found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Your spots and blemishes count for Christ, and he takes the fall for you. In his spotlessness and his blemishlessness, if that's a word, his blamelessness, counts for you instead, that you might be found perfect by God on that last day that you might have, as Peter says, peace with the Lord on the day of his coming, that your name might be written in the book of life. Jesus is the only way. Don't lie to yourself. You have no other hope. Paul writes of the church in Thessalonica that they turned from idols in 1 Thessalonians 1 to serve the living and true God. And he says in verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus can deliver you from the coming wrath. Don't perish. Cry out to him. He saves all of those who repent of their sins and trust alone in him to save them. Don't trust in your wealth. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in your religion or your theology. Trust alone in Christ. Living in light of that day, today, starts with repentance. You can't live in light of that day unless you first acknowledge that you deserve to be judged and repent of your sin and trust alone in him to save you. And if you are, if you are in him, he will not come back to judge you, but to save you. He will come back to rescue his people for himself. For the unrepentant, yes, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, but in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, for those who trust in Christ, for the children of God, it's a day of salvation and blessing. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. He will come back on that day to bring us to himself, to rescue us from this world and from sin forever so that we will always be with him. That's what awaits you on that last day if you're in Christ. That's your future. And so if you believe in that day, how then should you live today? First, you should live to please him the most possible. Verse 11, Peter says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Verse 11 calls you to holiness, to being set apart, to being morally pure. It calls you to godliness, which is the heart response of reverence and piety towards God. And verse 14 says that we should be found by him. Instead of how the wicked are found by him for judgment in verse 10, we should be found by him without spot. Figuratively, it means to be found by him undefiled and fully acceptable. We should be found by him without blemish, to be without blame. And while the tendency, I think, for us as Christians is to read a passage like this and say, well, our holiness comes from Christ. We're unblemished through him. We can breeze through this being content that his spotlessness counts for you. And yes, while that's true, Peter here is emphasizing behavior. He's emphasizing holy and godly lives. Christ didn't just come to make us legally righteous in God's eyes, although he did that. He came to make us new people through his death and resurrection. That through his death, we're united with him and our sinful nature dies with him. And when he's buried in the grave, we're buried with him. And when he's raised from the dead, we're raised to life with him as new people in righteousness and holiness as he is. That's what we celebrated with the baptism this morning with Alyssa. Baptism represents going into the waters, dying with Christ, and coming out a new person. Through him, we have the power to live godly lives now, the power to be set free from sin. Peter affirms this in chapter one of the book. He says his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Grow in your knowledge of him. Become more of that people that he's made you through Christ. Living a life that is pleasing to him and reflects him. This world is passing away. A new world is coming. A world where righteousness reigns. How sad it will be to come before him on that last day and have so little to offer. Imagine standing before Christ and presenting your life and him seeing how much time you spent so selfishly, him seeing the endless hours that you spent watching TV or Netflix or movies, how you pursued all the wrong things in life, how you looked to serve yourself, how you wasted so much time, how so many thoughts displeased him. C.T. Studd said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That is so true. Only what's done for Christ will last. You only have one chance. You get one life. It's so short. It's so short. Live it for him. Everything you do, let it be done for Christ. Only that which is done for him will last in the new world. Peter says to be diligent. That means to be swift. 
Figuratively, it means moving speedily by applying yourself wholly and entirely to a task. Exert yourself. Give it your all. Hold nothing back. Certainly don't sin. Don't grieve God who saved you. Don't grieve the God you're going to have to stand before on that last day. But instead, live for him. Be the most pleasing him that you can be. Make the most of your time now. Glorify him the most you can that when you stand before him on that last day, you can present the best life to him possible. That you might bring him glory forever and ever. That he might put the best crown on your head and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that you would cast that crown back down at his feet. Don't forfeit eternal blessings for the temporal trifles of this world. Give up everything in this world for him. Jesus himself told his disciples in Matthew 16 that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. He will reward the righteous for their righteousness. Seek to be rewarded the most possible. It's an eternal reward. It's not just a temporal reward in this life that will last for a short period of time. It's for all of eternity. Strive for that. Give up everything for that. If you came before him this day, will you be pleased with the life that you have to offer him? If not, ask yourself, what will you wish you had done differently? When you're standing before him, what will you wish you had changed while you were still here? I know I will wish that I loved others more. I will wish that I had served other people more and sacrificed more. I would have wished that I would have been more careful to honor him in everything I do and all of my thoughts and words and desires. I would have wished that I exhibited more of the fruit of the Spirit, that I have had more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Live this day in light of that day. Peter also says, secondly, wait for and hasten his coming. Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Waiting is used three times in verses 12 through 14. It means expecting or eagerly looking forward to the fulfillment of God's plan. We all look forward to things. What do you look forward to? Is it that dessert at the end of the day or a movie on Friday night or that vacation that you've been planning for for a while? Or maybe if you have the day off tomorrow for Martin Luther King Day, that's what it is for you. Look forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Fix your hope on that. Long for that. Wait expectantly and eagerly for that. Don't you long for all things to be right, for that world that is perfect without sin or suffering, perfect love, perfect relationships, and peace forever. He says, waiting and hastening, which means to desire something earnestly, but not just to desire it. It means to speed its coming, to make it happen sooner. Keep in mind the purpose of God's patience is for repentance and godliness. We ought to seek to fulfill that. By us repenting and seeking the repentance of others, we hope that it might speed his coming. 
And this in no way infringes on his sovereignty. It's part of his sovereign plan for him to leave this window of salvation open for more to repent and believe. So let's repent ourselves and seek godliness and do the same for others that he might come again. Live this day in light of that day. And last, lastly and thirdly, Peter says, count God's patience as an opportunity for salvation. Verse 15, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as the beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Account for this short window of time as a window of salvation. God in his patience desires for all to repent, but this will not continue forever. It will not always be like this. If he desires none to perish, shouldn't you desire for none to perish? He's given an opportunity for you to repent and for others to repent. So do it yourself and share the gospel with your friends. Share the gospel with your family. Share the gospel with everyone that we imagined earlier would stand before him on that last day, having rejected his word and being condemned. He says he is coming soon. Don't delay. Why so little urgency in our lives? Perhaps we've forgotten that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and will come soon. For me, I think it's more a lack of love than anything else. Don't love my unsaved family members and friends enough to share this word with them with the urgency it demands. If you love them and if you believe what the Bible says, you must tell them. How can you not? We must wake up and be fearful for them, for their lives, for eternities. Live this day in light of that day. So in summary, in light of that day, since we are blemished with sin and only Christ can make us righteous, we must repent this day and trust alone in him. And in light of that day, we must also seek to please him the most possible, wait for and hasten his coming, and count God's patience as an opportunity for salvation. Go and take action. Strive with all your might to live this day in light of that day and know that you're completely dependent on him to do it. 1 Thessalonians 5, Peter says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Verse 24, He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He will surely do it. By God's grace, you've seen the future now. You see the day of the Lord, which is rapidly approaching. This is what the Bible says, and it will certainly happen. I also pray you've seen how we ought to live this day as a result. Don't deny Christ's return like the false teachers did and seal your destruction. See it as it is. Repent and be full of fear for the lost, full of love for God, full of hatred for sin, eager for righteousness to reign and resolve to glorify him the most possible with the time that you have. Every day, remind yourself of his future return. Christ is coming let that sit in. Christ is coming again. Christ is coming again. Live this day in light of that day. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we acknowledge before you that we have not lived this day in light of your imminent return. Father, we, like the false teachers, that Peter opposes have followed our own sinful desires. We have lived as if there is no final reckoning, no day of judgment. We confess, Lord, that we deserve to be destroyed by you on that last day. That our sin is so severe 
and so offensive to you that we deserve to be separated from you forever in hell. Father, thank you beyond words can describe for sending your son to take our place, for sending your son to die the death that we deserve to die, for taking the full punishment in our stead. Lord, you do this simply because of your grace, not because we deserved it, but because you are so loving and so gracious and merciful. And you continue to defer your coming again that more might have the chance to repent and believe. If we have not repented, Lord, cause this to be the day that we do. And if we have repented, cause us to live our lives the most pleasing to you that we possibly can. We might present the best offering to you on that day when you come. We ask that you would fix our mind on that day and that we would truly live this day in light of it, in light of all that it demands. It's in your name. Amen.